Greetings from Bumrod Hospital Talks. My name is Dave Setaboot. I am an otolaryngologist, a head and neck surgeon. I am also a diplomat of the American Board of Otolaryngology. Today, our episode is about the ear. Uh, so we know the ear is kind of the foundation of how we develop speech. It's key to communication and really one of the fundamental aspects of our face. I'm going to break it into a couple separate sections today. Um, so the first, we're going to look at the role in child development and hearing. All births here at Bamunrad International Hospital follow current recommendations with regards to hearing assessment at birth. Hearing is very vital early on in life as this is the pathway children use to develop speech. There are many ways that we can check hearing in little babies. The most frequently used and simple method is basically a reflex test that we can use with uh, almost immediate results. After that, there are a little bit more sophisticated tests that can be done if needed. Some of these will sometimes actually require the child to be asleep to perform the test accurately. So many uh, of our listeners might be asking, you know, why, why so early and, and really why is it so important in this stage of a child's life? Really, it is because Early on, our brain starts to develop synapses. So these synapses, um, they develop basically connections in our brain and they will go on in one way or another, develop the speech aspects of our brain. If we don't allow kind of stimulation of these aspects of the brain, speech will ultimately be delayed because uh, they're not getting the feedback that they need to, to develop. We encourage parents to notice very early on um, regarding signs that their child may not be hearing well so that we can intervene in the very early stages uh, of life. Some kids that might have a higher risk of developing hearing loss uh, include children who are admitted to the hospital after birth, um, children who have to be on um, intravenous or IV antibiotics, uh, during that initial hospital birth, um, children who have jaundice, um, children who have to uh, undergo treatment for jaundice, including um, being in the neonatal ICU um, or having uh, to be in an incubator for some periods of time. Um, so as, as children age, what are some other ways that parents can identify if their child has difficulty with hearing? One good way to identify kids who have hearing loss is really just to see how they do about their daily activities. Sometimes we, we might notice them turning up the volume too high uh, while they watch cartoons. Um, teachers might uh, identify poor attention in school, or we might even notice that they have difficulty in, in their school performance. We might actually see an academic decline in, in students who are a little bit older. Although we do know that you know, some kids have selective hearing, it is important to rule out uh, that if there is a decrease in hearing uh, in your children, to have them immediately seen um, by their pediatrician and then potentially by their ear, nose, and throat doctor. 
The next section of our talk is, is going to be focused a little bit about ear care. Ear care is a common encounter we see in the ear, nose, and throat clinic. I first and foremost want to let all our listeners know that ear care is really relatively simple. Really what we must do is, is, is kind of avoid dirty water to enter into the ear canal. That's kind of first and foremost. The second thing is, is never stick anything smaller than your finger into your ear canal. Why is that? Because our, when we stick, you know, many people like to use cotton buds, Q-tips, um, or even their little pinky finger. When we stick that into our ear canal, we're essentially doing it blindly. We can't really identify how far we're going in. And if we go in too far, we could potentially cause trauma um, or injury into that ear canal. So cotton buds and Q-tips are an absolute no-no in the ear canal. If you do use cotton buds, I recommend that you use them on the outer surface of the ear. Um, but that's about it. Sometimes uh, a common occurrence that we see in the ear, nose, and throat clinic is wax. Uh, so many people have questions about wax. Uh, is it important? Is it worrisome? Is it infectious? Uh, I want our listeners to know that wax, the brown, that little hard, sometimes soft material that we see in the ear is very, very common, and we all have it. But depending on, you know, our gen genetic makeup, some of us have a lot of wax, some of us have very small amounts of wax, some people's wax is, is super hard, like I talked about, some people's wax is soft and gushy, but it's important to know that we all have varying amounts. And actually wax has a role in and of itself. It helps to decrease the incidence of infections because of its acidic properties. It can be a newsome. So, you know, I get parents a lot who come in and, and, and complain that it does smell, but that doesn't typically mean that it's infected. At the most part, sometimes wax um, can have people feel like their ears just clogged. Um, sometimes we get a lot of children, uh, sometimes even adults, they'll complain that their ear is itchy, and, and the most common reason for that is wax. But rarely does wax in and of itself cause pain. Um, the blockage that can occur with wax can, can be annoying to some, some patients, um, and it can sometimes block uh, the ability of doctors to see inside the middle ear which is behind the eardrum. If we have difficulty seeing behind uh, the wax, that can make it difficult to diagnose ear infections. So in those situations, we will typically recommend that you have to have the, the wax cleaned out. Um, I'll go into that a little bit later when we talk about ear infections in general. So how do we clean out this wax? So really wax, uh, there are two main ways that we can go about cleaning out wax. The first one is, um, you know, if you see your otolaryngologist, your ENT head and neck surgeon, um, we have lots of nice microscopes, um, we have um, suction devices, um, we have little graspers that we can kind of clean out the ear canal in a very kind of monitored and visual setting, which makes it very safe because we can see all the structures that we need to uh, be aware of so nothing gets hurt or damaged. 
Another way that uh, is an option for definitely for sometimes for smaller children or for our patients who don't feel comfortable having uh, the physician kind of dig around in their ear is you can have prescribed by your um, physician some eardrops. Uh, these eardrops, uh, which are called otic drops, um, have been used for ages. Um, sometimes people talked about using oil, but nowadays they, they actually make a solution uh, which actually helps the wax to kind of um, soften a bit. So sometimes in those situations, we recommend patients use it for about a week, uh, twice daily, and what it does, it softens it a bit and sometimes will allow the wax to kind of fall out on its own. The next section that uh, we're going to talk about is ear infections. So the, the common medical terminology that parents and patients sometimes hear about is otitis media. When we talk about otitis media, that's the most common ear infection that we see. Otitis media um, comes from uh, the translation being infection in the middle ear. So to get to that, let me kind of discuss a little bit about the anatomy of the ear first. When we talk about the ear, we usually divide it into three main parts. We have the outer ear, which includes the ear canal, the oracle. The oracle basically is your earlobe and the physical ear in and of itself. On the outside that we see um, that people pierce their ear, etc. The middle ear, which is behind your eardrum, also known as the tympanic membrane, is the second part. And then the last part is the inner ear. When we talk about ear infections, usually we're referring to the middle ear. The reason being is that the middle ear is a space that connects the back part of the nose via tube called the eustachian tube and has a higher incidence of infections. So otitis media, or middle ear infections, usually occur more so in kids than in adults. So the question is why? The reason is the eustachian tube, which is this long tube that connects the back of the nose to the middle ear, is relatively more horizontal in newborns, infants, and toddlers. And once we grow older, usually around the age of seven, that eustachian tube will start to angle. So once it angles, it kind of angles from, if you think about the middle ear angling down towards the middle of your nose, you kind of can, can see that angle come down. And what it allows is better drainage. So with better drainage, we kind of uh, decrease the incidence of ear infections. So that's the main reason we don't really see ear infections in adults, and we see less ear infections in older children after the age of seven. We get a lot of parents that come in and ask, you know, how did they get this ear infection? You know, for the most part, ear infections can be random. When I say random, it's the same thing as you know, what's the likelihood that we're going to get a cold? What's the likelihood that we're going to get a sore throat? So uh, many different viruses, many different bacteria can cause ear infections. Sometimes if a child might have an upper respiratory tract infection or they might have a cold, that can later on develop into an ear infection. However, there are some important things to know 
that we as parents um, and patients can do uh, ahead of time in a preventative way to prevent ear infections. We know that infants who drink breast milk have a lower incidence than those who use formula. The reason being is that breast milk has antibodies which serve as the body's layer of protection. Additionally, we know that if your family has um, any family members who smoke in the household, um, children in that household will have an increased risk of ear infections. Once kids enter into school uh, and they're around school-aged children, the rate of ear infections increase compared to those kids who, are, who may be at home. And the reason being is that we know that especially toddlers pass upper respiratory tract infections relatively easily. One difference this year that we kind of have had a silver lining to say is that with the COVID pandemic, we have an increased use of masks. So with that, uh, we have theoretically, and we actually have seen, there have been some decreases in some general upper respiratory tract infections. And with that, we anticipate maybe that could cause a decrease in ear infections as well. Another thing to remember, especially for um, parents of newborns, is that uh, when we feed them uh, their milk, it's important to have them somewhat upright because that allows less reflux of milk up through the eustachian tube, tube, which could be involved in prompting ear infections. So how do we identify ear infections? Um, for the most part, they can easily be identified when the child complains of plant pain accompanied by fever. As a parent of a three and a half year old, I know that uh, my son has a relatively high threshold of pain. And the first time that he had an ear infection, I remember him crying in pain in the middle of the night. So I brought him to the hospital the next day and diagnosed him with, with an ear infection. So uh, I guess that gives me a little bit of proof that I know that it is pretty painful for kids to have an ear infection. Because what is happening is, is usually um, it's a closed space in the middle ear. And in that closed space, they can develop pus or purulence. And in that closed space, you have to think about if it's closed and you have all this liquid inside that it's going to increase in pressure and that's what's causing their pain. So the best treatment is prompt diagnosis. And once they're able to diagnose either your pediatrician, your ear, nose and throat doctor, they're typically able to recommend a course of oral antibiotics. Most infections of the middle ear uh, can be treated in a week, which is seven to 10 days. Uh, with the use of just oral antibiotics. In some instances, there can be drainage from the ear. Um, sometimes uh, we might have fluid that comes out of the ear. And in those instances, we might also recommend some eardrops as well. Uh, another topic that we're going to talk about today is what happened if the fluid in that middle ear is not infected. So that can occur as well. Uh, so in some patients, again, especially in kids, uh, we can sometimes get kids who have fluid that kind of sits in that middle ear. 
they don't have an infection, they don't complain of pain, uh, they don't have a fever, um, but what we end up finding out is that they have a decrease in hearing. So it might just feel like their ear is clogged. We're typically able to diagnose this with uh, an audiogram, which tests our hearing, and then we do what's called a tympanogram, which basically tests whether or not there's fluid in the middle ear. Once we're able to test that there is actually fluid in the middle ear, we correlate that to their hearing. So we get, as I previously said, an audiogram, and that's able to detect if there is any hearing loss. If there is hearing loss, sometimes the best recommendation, especially in kids, is to actually have that fluid drained out. Because having that fluid drained out will automatically improve that child's hearing. Okay, so now on to the next type of infection that we're going to talk about is infections of the ear canal. So these infections also can cause significant pain, but we're going to see these more so in adults than we do so in kids. Uh, we see this in a lot of patients who like to swim a lot. Uh, the technical term for infections of the ear canal is otitis externa. Uh, typically, we treat it with topical antibiotic drops. In some cases, in very severe cases, the ear canal be can become very, very swollen. In those cases, uh, we will sometimes suggest putting a cotton packing in so that we can assure that the drops that we prescribe to the patient actually get down, down all the way through the canal. Because really, it's important to remember that if ear drops once we put them in the ear canal, if we, you know, don't lay on our side for enough amount of time, if we just, you know, stand up, go about our daily business, and the fluid kind of, or the medicine ends up coming out of the ear canal, we kind of lose the benefit of, of what it's meant to do. Um, so patients with otitis externa, it's very important that we get that medicine all the way through the canal. Uh, we know that otitis externa, or infections of the external ear canal, um, can be very severe in patients with diabetes or who have other immunodeficient diseases. The last part of, of our section uh, that we are going to be talking about today is really the aesthetic part of the ear. So we all know that apart from um, being an important part of our hearing, our communication, our development in speech, that the ear in and of itself is a focal point of the face. So we have many patients who might have more prominent ears uh, than they might enjoy or they might like. And really, there are very simple surgical procedures that can be done to lessen that, that angle so that the ears are less prominent and they become closer uh, to the head. And that can be a very simple outpatient procedure. Again, you know, improving the aesthetic aspects of the ear will ultimately have no impact on hearing, um, it is primarily just focused on the aesthetic value. So 
that kind of concludes today's episode. I want to thank you all for your attention. I hope I was able to give you some useful information. Again, my name is Dr. Dave Setabut with Bangunlad International Hospital Talks. We hope that you can please subscribe to our podcast for more episodes. And I encourage everyone to stay stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you.